We are back for part two of The Creator Mindset. Fantastic book, and we're here with the author, Nir Bashan. Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to create multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into part two with Nir Bashan. Nir, did you have a nice break? Hopefully you had a coffee. I did have a nice break and I'm ready. I'm supercharged now for more creativity. Where we finished off was with the trio, the superpowers of humor, empathy, and courage. And next you say, much of our success is all about how we decide to spend and make the most of our precious time. The creator mindset has some unique tools and skills that can be applied to time management. And of course, listening more and talking less. Both are keys in allowing creativity to make a business or career far more effective. Let's share the next three. So I mentioned there speaking, listening more and talking less. And I'm going to talk less here and pass it over to you because you say three things we can do here are look at meetings, look at micro listening, and of course, looking at shutting up, which I'll do now. Ah, yeah, you know, it's it's just one of those things where I've worked with different groups and I've I just it's almost systematic, right? You see people who are like near, you know, this is we're a really inclusive environment. We listen to everybody and our voices are so important, no matter where it comes from. It's like, great, that's the marketing material, right? And then I sit in on meetings and kind of go through this stuff with them. And it's amazing, right? It's just like one dude talking the whole time, right? Or like a certain group that tends to lead the meeting, and they're doing the whole lifting. They're the ones with the slide deck and everybody's sitting there. Nobody wants to be talked at. People want to be talked with and talked to. And so one thing that people can do immediately to become more creative is to just shut up, right? And listen to what's going on in meeting. What ends up happening is you have amazing creative ability that comes up when you're not the one doing all the talking all the time, right? So it is incredibly important to do listening. This is something that is a proven uh, skill and actually comes from the intelligence community, right? So there are several studies that show that if you can befriend somebody, let's say you're doing an investigation or whatever, or even just allow people the space to talk, by talking, they will tell you all kinds of things that maybe they're not supposed to tell you, right? Now at work, how do you use that, right? You're not like particularly, you're not investigating somebody or, you know, doing some kind of police work with your coworkers. What you're doing is you're trying to help them uh, or trying to improve creativity. So what you do is you, you start to listen more. And as you listen, you let somebody talk and really express how they, they feel. Um, you do that with a little bit of empathy and you can actually derive a lot of action items from the fact that you are holding yourself back from speaking and you're waiting for somebody else to get their full idea out. And, and you're not just waiting to talk, right? Which is another common uh, thing that people do. They're like, oh, Nir, I'm a good listener. Okay, cool. All they're doing is really just waiting to talk, right? They're waiting for the point where that person is done so that the other person can kind of take over. But when you when you really listen, you come up with 
a lot of creativity that that person has that you can then use. It's an action item that you can take forward and, and use. It's an, an amazingly straightforward and simple method, yet it is something that a lot of people don't do. I break it up into micro listening and macro listening and different types of, of environments where that's appropriate. Um, it, but basically the bottom line is that next time you're in a Zoom or a GoTo or a Teams meeting, whatever you guys use, at work and you're the one who's usually doing the talking or the presenting, hand it over to somebody. Say, hey, you know, we all know about this initiative. I'm going to have Sally kind of uh, walk us through it and, and let her do it or let somebody else do it and listen to what's going on. Listen to how they approach it. Every human being, because our DNA is so tightly bound in creativity. It is the reason why we are alive today. Every human being will express creativity in a different way. It is our brand differentiator. It is who we are as human beings and it's who we are in, in business too. And our companies ultimately follow that. So when you are allow when you allow somebody to have the the floor, then you really do some listening and take some notes and really experience through empathy what they are saying, you instantly create creativity. Next time you're on that Zoom meeting, put it on mute. If you get the urge to talk, put it on mute. If you're like, wow, I have something really important to contribute, put it on mute and listen to what other people are saying. Gather your thoughts, gather what other people are saying, and then unmute it and then say what you have to say, but only with the hindsight of having the contrib the contribution be from someone other than you. It's funny, again, connecting the dots. And this is a beautiful thing, you know, from having your own podcast, you have to listen, like there's nothing worse than a podcast host, it makes it all about themselves. But it's great when you hit mute and you're listening because you're connecting dots between different things. But we had a great guest on the show. He's uh, multi, he's one of the big highest viewerships of a TED talk ever, Julian Treasure. And yeah. he, had, he had a book called How to Be Heard. And what was most interesting, he was talking about listening as the superpower of how to be heard, because it's like you create this almost debt with somebody where you've given them the time to speak and you've genuinely listened to them. But he said, most people engage in what he called screen or script writing as they're listening. So it's like, what will I say now when Nears finished? <laughs> yeah. Writing? And now you have to do a little bit of that when you're in doing a podcast like this. But I do try and react to what the guest is saying rather than just try and follow a script because I, I think you can smell that a mile away and it's just not interesting. It has a Sorry. lot to do, Aiden, with authenticity. You know, um, it when you do listen, your responses become authentic. Your show becomes authentic. Your business becomes authentic. Your product or service becomes authentic. When you do exactly what you just said, you kind of fake it. People can smell a fake a mile away. And the one thing that always kind of, you know, encompasses the fake is that listening component or lack thereof. You're so right, man. And, and it's even, even down to one thing I'm really uncomfortable with is LinkedIn is a huge driver of audience for even for my own business, but also for the podcast, because I share links on on I share excerpts, as you know, on LinkedIn. And I, I struggle with talking about myself on LinkedIn, I, I, you know, the humble brag, the, you know, incredibly humbled <laughs> by and then something brilliant that happened to me, right, right, right. <laughs> I really struggle with that. Because because when I see people I know, and they're like, 
uh, so honored about this, and you're kind of yeah, like, you're, you're like, come on. <laughs> so I, I really, I really do struggle. With I'm that. guilty of it, man. I do it. I, it's horrible, but like, it's so hard to talk about yourself, and it feels so weird. Yeah, it does. It really does. Uh, get, getting back to because another thing um, that I don't know if you struggle with this, but you mentioned it in the book is celebrating the small victories. I, I mean, when, when I finished writing my book, even. A, a guy I, I respect a lot. He's a great listener to the show, Philip Matthews. He said to me, he said, you must be so happy about this book. And I was like, kind of going, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm just think, I'm thinking about the next thing all the time. And you talk about the importance of celebrating those small wins. Particularly, I think this is so poignant and apt for innovators and change makers because we don't do that we're because we've always arrived in the big prize and we don't take time to actually celebrate those wins. previous guest on the show shannon lucas uh, she calls this bread crumbing not only because of celebrating the small wins like you say but she said sometimes like if you work in a legacy organization others don't want you to succeed because that means change the organization and you need to point to the breadcrumbs and go i did that 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 and that but to a change maker that seems again a little bit like the linkedin post a little bit of talking too much about yourself definitely it's really um the the concept of the little victory is something that has come to me through years of getting it wrong right so everything in the book i violated every which way you can imagine. I was the loud mouth in the meeting that talked all the time and didn't let other people talk. I forced my way through business dealings. And, you know, I was like, analytics are everything. Show me the numbers. We make decisions on numbers. You know, I was that guy. This interview is over, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, every everything has been violated every which way possible. And it's settled at the end of the day at, on a path that worked. And the path that worked is to celebrate those little victories, man, you have to. And what we find a lot of times, and I'm sure you find this with the people you work with too, is that everybody's so fixated on that one year, the three year, the five year, whatever the vision is. We just got off a, a meeting with a client and they were like, dude, our vision is this. And it was super lofty. I'm like, great. How long have you guys been working on it? That's our five-year vision. And our CEO t- said that we're going to Oh my God. Oh my God. It's like, you know, innovation through technology or whatever. It's like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't even, so yeah, I get it. Having a one year or three or five years is important, right? It's an important operational goal, right? To have some performance metrics and, and stuff in place. Okay. That's fine. That's the analytics. It's good. Let's not get rid of it. Let's keep it. But what happens is when you don't balance that with some creativity, it becomes something that like, like it's like a motivational poster. You can do it. You know, people look at it and they're like, I want to punch that thing. Like, you know, like you go to the break room and you see a poster. It's like, you can do it. That doesn't motivate anybody that antagonizes people, right? It makes them angry. So the, the, the little victory is really about taking those little things that happen along that way uh, of your five year and making a big deal of it, right? It, it's getting a chapter done if you're a writer, uh, an author that's trying to get a book done. And it's taking a moment to just celebrate those little things. Now, what I found that is really interesting is that these breadcrumbs that your previous um, author or guest talked about, 
might just lead you to a different payoff than what you thought it would. Okay. So I work with groups a lot of times. This is amazing, Aiden. I'm sure you found this and maybe this will resonate with your listener. I work with people who are like, Nir, my five-year is that, or my three-year is that, and we're going over there. And every single thing that they do in their life at work, it's pointing them in a completely different direction. And every day they go to work and they fight, they fight and they fight and they fight. And they're going in this other direction because like, oh, look, you know, that's where my plan is. And the analytics take me there. And every single fiber of their being is telling them to go a different way. I talk about this in a keynote that I do about innovation, where there was a uh, uh, ice cream salesman many years ago who wanted to sell a bunch of ice cream machines. His five-year was to sell a shitload of ice cream machines to everybody on earth, and it's going to be great. That was his his five-year. He set up the entire business to do that, the outbound calls, the you know client relationships, everything was set to do that. And he had a customer in California that kept ordering machines over and over again. And he was like, oh, that's cool. It's just another account. And then one day he was like, you know what? Something's going on here. I got to get a little bit creative. I got to see why it is that that person keeps ordering machines. Now, any analytical view of that would tell you not to do that. Any business school MBA will tell you not to do that, right? Why? Because you got to get on a plane that costs money. You lose time and money and efficiency because you're not manning the phones or whatever, you know, getting out there doing the sale. You lose uh, um, money on on traveling, you're out of pocket because you're in an airplane, so you can't make you know phone calls or get on the internet or whatever. Not that any of that existed at my particular story, but anyway, you're not available. So this guy said, looked at all the analytics and said, you know what, I'm going to go out there anyway. So he went out to this restaurant, spent like a week, you know, traveling, and and finally gets to the restaurant. The lines out the door, 45 minute long wait, 45 minute long wait. Right, he gets to the to the counter. And he orders a hamburger and a milkshake, right? The milkshake was made with his ice cream machines, but he's like, you know, shit, I'm hungry at this point. So he has a hamburger and it's the best hamburger he's ever had in his entire life, right? The best hamburger, the best cheeseburger ever. And that guy's name was Ray Kroc and the restaurant was McDonald's. So while we're so busy trying to navigate towards where we think we need to go, sometimes life along the way points you in a different direction. Aiden, it's incredibly important that we listen to that different direction because that is creativity, trying to bubble up through your consciousness and trying to guide you in a way that you perhaps should go in the beginning. And what's more is that Ray enjoyed the restaurant business a million times more than the grind and the crap and the, you know, all these negative words that have to describe what he felt like going to work as an ice cream machine salesman, right? He hated that. He loves hamburgers. Let's do hamburgers all the time. It's okay to allow your little victories to point you in the way that you really do need to go. We just have to listen to those things and have the courage to execute that path. It speaks also to something you talk about in the book is, is about the uh... Sometimes we're overly focused on that goal 
And even if it's in the wrong direction, we're, we're so focused on it. And a great advocate of our show, and he sends loads of traffic our way, is, I don't know if you know, Andrew Hooperman. He has a magnificent podcast called The Hooperman Lab, all about the brain and about eyesight, etc. But while you get a lot of this near, he said, if they use eye tracking, for example, and they look at an eye looking into a woods, right? If the eye is stressed and, and the eye to be stressed is focused. So if if you are interested in somebody, say somebody you find attractive walks past you on the street, the eye dilates, it's stressed, right? Equally, if you see something that is a threat, the eye dilates and it's stressed, right? So it, it's that type of eye. Um, and then if it sees if the eye is relaxed and if you're in the creator mindset essentially your eye is constricted so it's nice and narrow and when they look on the reversed angle of you looking into woods when it's stressed it will only see one tree in the forest but if it's constricted and it's relaxed it will see the forest for the trees it will see them all and and when I read about that I was like oh wow that's exactly what happens in organizations when it's like we're going this way and and that focus is great but focus also makes you miss so many other things and that's what we're going to talk about next because you talk about the importance of one of the things that happen is in that what you call mistake utility which is when you make a mistake when you're so hell-bent on where you're going you can miss magic and one of the great examples you give comes from 1928 and a man called Alexander Fleming. The mistake utility is incredibly important. It's a creative tool that allows you to use mistakes for the benefit of your business. And, and in some cases, like the story you're referring is uh, the change of humanity, right? So we have a, a scientist who uh, got kind of tired of uh, of doing research because he was working on trying to get to a certain level and none of the experiments were able to point him in that direction. And then finally, you know, he said, you know what, I'm going to leave it all, go on a little vacation and come back with a fresh mind and a fresh way to look at it. And, you know, um, he came back and looked at this, uh, uh, you know, the, the test tubes or whatever that he left. Uh, under a microscope and saw that all this bacteria that he was growing is starting to be eaten by this thing and literally discovered penicillin by mistake. He didn't set out to discover this. He was working on on a cold or some kind of like flu uh, vaccine or um, treatment or something like that. It, it's amazing. Yet today in, in business, we don't let mistakes happen. Uh, a buddy of mine named Bill Woodich wrote a book called Fail More. Fail more, it's really, really good. Uh, it's a McGraw-Hill release. And basically the entire book is about why you should make more mistakes in your business and like how you can learn from those. And everybody's so scared right now of making mistakes because, oh, we're post-pandemic, maybe, maybe not. Like, I don't, you know, there's a war in Ukraine and like, this is the worst time to do anything. And my creative view is that this is the best time to do anything, right? You have inflation in the U.S., at, I don't know, like 8%. It, it hasn't been this high since, I don't know, the 80s, 40 years ago, right? And you have um, 
you know, all this hybrid work, some people are working from home, some people are in the office, there's a lot of conflict there, like, oh, what are people doing? You you know, this is the best time to make mistakes, because quite frankly, you have someone else to blame. And that's kind of cool, right? So if you if you're trying to take a risk on an idea, and using mistake utility right now is the time to do it. Because if it doesn't work, you go, oh, well, inflation sucks. So obviously, that idea didn't work, which is great, because you have a scapegoat, right? So what I'm trying to help people do is learn to kind of love that mistake and really extract meaning and extract some kind of forward momentum from making that mistake. Because ultimately, everybody, me included, probably times 10, will make mistakes along their path in their business. And the value is learning from what happened and making sure that, you know, it doesn't happen again through a set of uh, solid lessons learned. Um, There is no innovation. There is no creativity. There is no forward momentum on any of this stuff unless we make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are more powerful than having gotten it right in the first place. One of the things you talk about later on, and we'll talk about in a sec, is fear. And that fear cripples people about even admitting the mistakes. But even if you had a culture that admits the mistakes, you can fix the process quickly instead of blaming the person. As Toyota have, it's the five whys, not the five who's trying to find the culprit, who did this, etc. But one, one of the things that is so tied to this, again, I mentioned, for example, I worked in that corporate bureaucratic organization. And you talk about imagine you had a manager who is so tied up in their ego, they're so fearful, what are they going to do? They're going to quash the ideas of anybody around them. It's the tall poppy syndrome, they keep everybody low, so they look high. And I thought about how this is so dominant in so many organizations, people are afraid to put their head above the parapet. And as a result, no creativity comes from organizations. And you talk about this, the crippling aspect of ego in life, but also in organizational innovation. Ego is one of those things that like really, really kills ideas. And, you know, it exists everywhere um, in any any business, any product, any service, any initiative has a, a sense of ego. Th- those things can be, they can be overcome, right? The power of the idea is such that, you know, it is, it will always find a home. That That's the thing. It might not be an instant gratification thing, but eventually, eventually these things find where they need to go. A lot of times people today, especially want the get rich quick thing, or, you know, Hey, I came up with an idea and I got rich quick. It happens a lot in podcasts. I've noticed people are like, I put five podcasts out. Why am I not Joe Rogan? You know, it, it, how long have you been podcasting before you've reached your level of success? Six and a half years, man. Six and a half. Yeah. And you're one of the top podcasts on innovation anywhere in the world. You didn't start six minutes ago. I mean, you started six and a half long, plus all of the work before then to get the concept, to get the format. Do we go longer? Do we go shorter? Every single business is exactly the same. There is a lot of pre-work done before the product hits the market. And assuming that these ideas are get rich quick or everything happens so fast or whatever, because I read about something on Instagram, you know, some kid who made, you know, a million dollars and now he's showing us how to do it on YouTube. It's like that, that's not the reality. And that does not exist. So 
what ego does is it pretends that that exists, but ultimately good ideas will live forever if they are stuck to and if they're adhered to. People tell me all the time, Nir, this is great. I work at a company, my boss is an complete asshole, and I cannot get any good ideas off. And I tell them, yeah, well, it might be time to find a new job. And people go, well, but, but you know, it, won't it work? Blah, blah, blah. No, it might not work. If you work at Coke, you might need to go work at Pepsi. Or if you work at Pepsi, you might need to go work at Coke. You have to let your ideas get out there and not be afraid of sort of, you know, the victimization of things. That That's what I'm saying, Aiden. It's like, you, you have to understand that when we look at things from a victim mentality and not a creator mindset, we get nowhere in life. It's always someone else's fault. It's not my fault. There's ego at work. My idea will never go forward. It's like, then what are you doing? What are you doing to get it to move forward, right? People, it's incredible. People think of work as like an extended family or like some kind of like love nest where everybody, oh, we can't have anybody have an idea that's not, you know, everybody has to feel loved and all that stuff. Uh, what? I, listen, you're there to contribute to the bottom line of that company. If that's a nice and friendly and warm and fuzzy environment, great. If that's what you're looking for, great. Go work at those companies because they're out there. If you want the kind of company that is forward looking at ideas and stuff, might not be a warm and fuzzy company, right? Your current position might need to be changed. And people hate hearing that. They're like, how could you? I need tools to help me deal with my asshole boss. It's like, yeah, dude, there are situations where where you are working is the fundamental problem to escaping creativity. And your fear of change is what's holding back your creativity. Because if you have an idea and you believe in it that much, and you have the courage to go out there and say, hey, this is a really good idea. Why are you working for someone else? Go execute that idea for yourself in your own business. But a lot of people don't do that because it's really scary and, and all of the scary fear that comes along with it. Or if you don't want to take that leap, go to a competitor or go work in a different industry that has the same sort of uh, mentality or whatever. We live in unprecedented times of prosperity, unprecedented times of prosperity. A hundred years ago, the life expectancy was something like 50. I mean, 55 was old. Um, unprecedented time in medicine, in technology, in tools that help humanity. Uh, I, believe me, I think we can be like 10 times better than where we are now, but but we, we do have that at our disposal. So if you are working somewhere and you're like, oh, I'm kind of stuck. No, my ideas aren't being, you know, listen to or whatever, you got to try their different methods. I talk about it in the book, you can look it up online. Um, but at a certain point, you got to cut your losses and say, okay, maybe I, I'm, I need to stop the victim mentality. Maybe I need to go somewhere else. I love it, man. I, I think that so many people are, are crippled by fear. And that's linked to ego, what will people think, etc. And I often think I, I write a weekly article and I wrote about this last week, there's a quote uh, by Marcus Aurelius. And he said, I have often wondered how it is that every man or woman loves himself more than all the rest of man, but yet sets less value on his own opinion of himself than on the opinion of others. We cling to that idea, what will they think they, you know, screw they, it doesn't matter about they, it's about you and your family, write your own screenplay and be the star of that screenplay yourself. 
I say, and it, 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 I definitely, I mean, it's one of the reasons I reached out to you. I love books like this and people who think this way, because the more we can share that, hopefully we can flavor how others think and they can go and pursue dreams that they all have deep inside them as well. But um, I, I wanted to quote the next part because, man, this is, I want to bear in mind for our audience, Nir wrote this book before the pandemic, because this next quote that I have is prophetic of what happened. Yes, you may be stuck in an organization, but you may have tasted some really toxic leadership during the organization, because there's a great saying that any turkey can fly in a storm. So when things are prosperous, and things are going well in the business environment, or you're a coach of a sports team, and you're winning all the games, you can look great, you can talk a great game. We've seen this with Netflix at the moment. Netflix, we're all watching you to see how you react now with no rules, rules, when the company has taken a hit in the stock market, etc. And you said, in good times, it is easy to be a hero. It doesn't take much effort to show fine character in fair weather. Things are going well, after all. Clients are responding and buying. Your career is going well. Promotions are beckoning and margins are healthy. But what happens when the ship takes on a bit of water? Or a lot of water and starts to sink. In bad times, character is put to test. Many, many people, including myself, I experienced this in the last organization I worked in. When things did not go well, the leader, the so-called leader, took on, well, maybe they didn't take on a different character. It revealed who the real person was underneath. It revealed their real character. And this is something you point out. We need to work on our personal character and also realize the character of those around us. I, I think the bad times reveal who people really are, not the good times, right? Anybody can be a hero when things are good, but when things are bad, it really shows how, how things um, really are. And people tell me all the time, Nir, you know, uh, I'm not in leadership, I'm in management, or I'm a senior, you know, accountant at, uh, at one of the, you know, big three uh, accounting firms, I don't know, whatever. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not in the C-suite. I don't have any power. What power do I have? And that is completely false. Because when you look at it creatively, your character, when a storm is going around you, is who you are, it's your DNA. And it is an incredibly important thing that you can control. You might not be able to control what happened, but you can always control how you react, always. And that is an incredibly powerful and an incredibly effective thing to do at work, right? Because when the ship has taken water and, and you're not in leadership, you have several options there, right? People are always like, well, I had no choice and I had to do this. this completely false. You always have a choice on how you react, right? And so if everyone around you is like, you know, screaming their heads off and you're the one that maintains cool, well, when things eventually correct, guess who's going to be looked at as being a superstar? It's going to be you. Why not be that person, right? It's not that hard to, to say, you know what? I'm not going to get involved in this group mentality and this, you know, crowd mentality of how everybody's reacting because the CEO's doing it. I'm going to do, I'm going to be a beacon of hope. A Just because you've decided to do that, you instantly become that. Now, if you're a leader, you also have those same choices, right? You can either, you know, fly off the handle like everyone else, or you can say, you know what, this is an opportunity for us to grow. And, and I, I promise you, 
that most innovation and most creativity in the last 50, 60, 70 years in companies throughout the world has come from perilous times. That's come from something gone really, really wrong. And the leadership's reaction and the day-to-day employee's reaction is incredibly important in finding innovative ways to transition from that. I talk in the book about the Tylenol uh, crisis. I don't know if people remember, it was a little while ago and there was a, a, a some wacko terrorist who poisoned cyanide uh, inside of uh, Tylenol pills and sold it, right? And so people bought the, the he, he went into a pharmacy, opened it, put the poison in there and people died. It was horrible, horrible, horrible thing. A lot of people died. Um, from this tainted Tylenol. And you could have, you could imagine that, you know, the Tylenol people were like, what the, what the good heck is going on here? And so, you know, they did some research and found out, you know, hey, it's not our factory, it's not our whatever. And they had a choice at that point. They could have said, you know what, uh, we don't know what's going on. This is the worst thing ever. We're being victimized and it's not us. And they could have done whatever they wanted, but they chose instead to do something which was unprecedented. And they chose to tell everybody, hey, we don't know what's going on, but we're going to look into it, which is awesome because how often do you have corporate responsibility these days, right? Where somebody tells you, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to look into it. That's amazing. They did that as a company, right? And then what ended up happening was they found that this you know guy did it or or whatnot, but it led to a revolution in packaging. So the next time you're at the supermarket and you see that like your, you know, cottage cheese has a, uh, um, you know, a plastic liner on it, it comes from that Tylenol crisis because before this, nothing was, was sealed because who in their right mind would ever poison some food, you know, cottage cheese or a gallon of milk or a medicine? Who, who would do that? Well, somebody did it. And now it led to all of these incredible innovations. The point is you always have a choice in how you deal with these things. You always have a choice of whether you're going to fly off the handle or not. Character is incredibly important and it counts in how you react act, especially when things go wrong. And when they go really, really wrong is the point of incredible potential for innovation. It's up to you in your business, your product, your service, whatever your career to recognize those moments and to seize the opportunities that come up with, uh, or that come out of things going wrong. One of the things I mentioned earlier on, is linked to this. So I, I succeed, I take on the creator mindset, I create a business. And I, I'm enjoying my success. But with that complacency, our successes can often defeat us. And you say, complacency comes in the creator mindset in three distinct flavors, early warning signs, exploitative sales, and then the paralysis of choice. And I'd love you to unpack these three. We'll we'll share these three, another trio, and then I have a great story to finish, which involves breaking away from the past and recognizing your past at the same time, which is all to do with reinvention. So they're the two last topics we'll finish on. But let's tell tell our audience a little bit about the importance of recognizing complacency. I'm a big case study kind of guy. Like I love to look at different companies, different field vertical and seeing what I can learn from them, right? I've spent a long time uh, doing that just because why not have someone else make a mistake and learn from it? It's the same. It's the same net benefit to you. If somebody else or some other company makes a mistake and you learn something, great. It's it's the same 
as you making the mistake and learning from it. So um, yeah, the complacency comes in three, three different format. One is really all about sort of, you know, um, a paralysis of choice. That's when things are going really well, right? And everything is great. And you're having innovation, you're having people excited through the organization and things are going really well. But at the end of the day, you don't execute any of them right? That happened a lot. It's one of the things that bought down um, quite literally Pan Am Airlines, right? Pan Am had a lot of really great people to use the first computer reservations in the 60s. They had a you know, computer that took up like two floors and handled reservations. It's amazing how innovative and incredibly good they were. Um, yet they, they, they faltered at some point. Um, they had some terrorist uh, activity. They were the first to institute all of this, um, uh, they were the first to research the innovation behind security checkpoints and screening people and all that stuff, yet they used none of it. It's amazing. They were like, you know, they had this, the security scanners, they had the baggage belt that scans your thing and shows, oh, there's a metal object or there's something bad going on. They had every single one of those tools innovated by their different departments inside their company and they chose nothing. So paralysis of choice uh, is is really like one way that that a company can can just go down the tube. Um, the exploitative sale. There's a lot of companies that exploit people to sell stuff, especially online. It's horrible. But you know, if you watch YouTube, there's videos of oh, how to buy you know a mega car. You can everyone can drive a Lamborghini if you just follow my program, right? You pay the guy twenty nine bucks. And you watch the program and guess what? You can't buy a Lamborghini, right? Because you can't afford it. So you pay this guy and it's an exploitative sale. There's a Columbia house in the U.S. used to do this thing where you send a penny and they would give you, you know, some some CDs. Uh, and the great composers. Would, do you remember that? I I, I, yeah. I was a victim of this, man. You know, of oh. course, me too, because it's yeah. awesome. I want 10 CDs for a penny. And then, you know, you get you get into this program there where, you know, you have to hire a lawyer to get out of it. The timeshare industry is the same. They've got fundamental problems. The dealership, the dealership industry in the United States, the car dealership industry is the same. It's an exploitative sale. I was on a, a really popular podcast and I and I basically told them people hate dealers. That's why they're buying Teslas online. You guys have to do something. I'm sure you have as a dealership organization, you know, 57,000 members in the United States. Somebody had some good ideas. It's time to act on them, you know? Like, what are you guys doing? You're Everybody's going to go online. You're going to lose that, you know, corner dealership that sells Chevys. So, that's uh, an example of the uh, exploitative sale. There's so many ways that we can get complacent that we have to sort of recognize those things and we have to move forward in knowing that we might be getting into those traps. I hate those exploitative sales, man. I, I was uh, brought, brought one of the most wonderful holidays I've had was bringing my kids to see Santa in Lapland. And when you go over there, it's like you stay in Santa Village and all this. Yeah, stuff. yeah. But you're you're a hostage <laughs> to like pretty average food with very very high price. Oh, I bet. And I find this always with those places, like the the food for sale in a cinema or in a play, you know, in an amusement park or something <laughs> like that. And they hike up the prices because you're a hostage and you can't. Bring what are you going to do? You're hungry. Yeah. You have no choice. I, I hate that. You're Ryanair. <laughs> they're still surviving as well. But they that type of mentality. Yeah. Just makes you resent the brand. You're like kind of going, come on, that's 
like it's 2022 here. Come on. People build an entire business around that. It's amazing. How can you do eventually you're just going to piss off enough of your customers to go, you know what? Forget this. Absolutely. Uh, as Blockbuster knows, well, well, too late, too, too, too little, too late. So I, I mentioned, I thought a great way to finish would be in a kind of a shocking story that will surprise many people. And, you know, I, I, I talked about this before. I don't know if you know the story of, you know, the Coca-Cola's Fanta, you know, that, that, brand they have fanta the orange yeah, drink yeah yeah so fanta i know the song fanta, <laughs> fanta, fanta. fanta actually was invented in germany in nazi germany and it was invented there when there was a ration on things like sugar and they couldn't get the ingredients coca-cola company to make coca-cola so fanta fanta comes from the word fan fantasia which means imagination in germany and what it was was the the leader of the team in Germany, the Coca-Cola company, he's like, look, let's use our fantasia, our imagination here and come up with a drink. So they were taking orange peels and lemons and syrups and stuff, and they made Fanta, right? But the reason I, I mention it is many, many organizations that are very successful have murky pasts. <laughs> and, and what Coca-Cola did was when they released this almanac of the history of Coca-Cola, they didn't mention anything about that. And you cannot escape the past. Wow, and yeah. you introduce, I'm teeing this up nicely, I hope for you. You introduce the same with another company that some people might not know, and it will surprise people. So I'll introduce this concept firstly of breaking away from the past and then recognizing your past, because these are essential for the concept of reinvention. That is essentially what innovation is all about. And I'll introduce this concept and you can take it away with a beautiful paragraph here. You say Porsche. Yes, Porsche started. Or do you say Porsche in the US? It's Porsche. Yeah, you say Porsche. We say, I, I say Porsche. Porsche started as a car company that made vehicles for the Nazis. Ferdinand Porsche, <laughs> the owner, invented the VW Beetle for Hitler. And under Porsche's parent company, Volkswagen, and I, I always call out Volkswagen. You did that Dieselgate Volkswagen. You're not getting away from it. Not on this show. Even though that means you'll never be sponsor. I don't care. <laughs> We're very happy with Zai, our sponsor. So Volkswagen, and they had their own concentration camp called an Arbeitsdorf, which means a working village at which prisoners were forced to make cars, tanks, and other vehicles. Their focus at the time was tanks and submersibles, vehicles that would drive the German army on their conquest of Europe, spreading Nazi ideology far beyond the borders of their home country. But soon the war was over and the Allied forces had won. However, this story is not about the past, you tell us. It's about the future. How in the world was Porsche able to transcend its murky history as a car manufacturer that fed the Nazi war machine. Over to you to tell us how did they do it? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. You know, I've been on like five, 600 podcasts now. You're the first to ask about this. Damn straight, so, man. You're not getting away with it. Hats off to you, man. Hats off to you. Yeah, a lot of people don't want to talk about the past because it's too, you know, it's like, uh, it, like people don't want to go there, but you have to talk about it. You have to get it out there and then you have to improve. So what Porsche did was something really, really kind of special. It's unique. Um, 
they realized that this is how they started. I mean, it's legit. It's, uh, it, we worked with our archives quite a bit to pull some information and it was painful. I got to be honest with you, man. It wasn't like they were like, oh, here's some emails and stuff. They're like, what are you doing? What are you writing? And we had to get a lot of information across so that they understood how we're positioning it and, and what we're saying. But but it's basically the truth and, and the truth has to get out there. So yes, they were 100% complacent in the um, in Nazi Germany in the in the history of uh, uh, of World War II, and they managed right after the war to do something incredible. Um, the owner, the guy who founded Porsche, died shortly after the war. He was actually in prison. It's kind of a crazy story. Um, but he died, and his son took over. And his son said, "You know what? We have to break from the past." and move on to the future. And our future is motorsports and our future is racing. And we need to double down on what it is that we're really, really good at. And that's what they did. They, they broke from the path and they moved forward. And then at some point in the, in the late nineties, um, you know, uh, people were, were starting to talk about this again, right? There's a, a buyer has a huge, huge history um, in the Nazi war machine, you know, the, the people who make aspirin. Um, there's several, several companies that have histories there um, that haven't been as good as Porsche about talking about it. So, you know, they, they put out some paperwork, they put out a fund, they, they, it was largely symbolic because they didn't have, you know, any Holocaust survivors uh, take them up on their money. But they, they put a fund out there and said, hey, we're really sorry uh, about what we've done. This is an embarrassment to our company. Um, it's out there. You can see it on their press releases and stuff like that. Um, we have had a dark past. We've learned from it. And we've recognized it, we've cut it off, and now we make motorsport vehicles. And they're one of the most beloved brands in the world. So the murky past of a company, the murky past of a human being is not necessarily a deterrent to doing good later, right? The rehabilitation of an evil is the meaning of life, literally. I mean, it is literally the fabric of what it is that we need to be focusing on. Like there are people that do things that are evil in the world, right? And there's people that do things that are incredibly positive. And just because somebody or a company that's done something really bad at one point doesn't mean that that transformation and that transition can't occur. So for, for them, Part the the main part with cutting off any connection with with the Volkswagen bug and all that stuff. They they gave all of the the paperwork and all of the stuff, the engineering stuff to Volkswagen, and they said run with it. We're making the 356, and and we're later the 911 and the 912, and we're literally going to march forward on making performance race cars that people can own, that people can love, that have nothing to do with a mass-produced vehicle. They're still that way today. They make, I don't know, maybe 100,000 cars a, a year, maybe maybe 150,000 cars a year. They will never be a mass producer. They will never make, you know, uh, a Skoda or, you know, a, a Honda Civic. It's not their business. Their business is exactly where it needs to be. They recognize the path. They made amends for it as best as they could. And they're moving forward now in an incredible, incredible transition into one of the world's most beloved brands. So um, 
this is uh, also uh, applicable to the Tylenol people, right? You could you could say that, uh, you know, they, they were hit really hard, but they also recognized it and they moved forward. So it doesn't matter what happens. It really matters how you uh, deal with it, how you make it right and how you move forward. I just wanted to close the loop on it. Like I, I, I was, I am really annoyed about Volkswagen because when Volkswagen did the diesel gate, they, the next year they were the most popular brand, you know, because they own Skoda and they own Porsche and those other brands, it was like kind of going, let's put all our energies into Skoda now. And you know, the Volkswagen parts that, that, that does annoy me. And I, I constantly look myself in the mirror and kind of go, where am I doing that? Where am I being hypocritical of that in my life? You know, the whole thing about sustainability, particularly because Dieselgate has had such a, a profound impact on the planet. Like, I mean, these things are huge for people. So anyway, and the other thing is, for those people that don't know, Hugo Boss also made army uniforms for the Nazis as well. Like, And Swiss banks were involved. In that. There's a huge murky past. But let's focus on the positives here. We're letting go of the past, and that's the whole idea. And I wanted to share an interesting thought that that came to me. And we did a magnificent four-part series with a brilliant guy called Jeff, Jeffrey West, who wrote a book called Scale. It's a brilliant book. But in the book, he talks about growth and how growth happens. So if you think of metabolic growth, it, it, one of the questions he poses, he goes, why does an organism stop growing later in life? Well, the reason is, in the early years, and, and I saw this as an analogy for organizations, but also what you're talking about here. In the, in the early years, most of the energy of an organism is in growth, it's interested in growth. But as the organism gets bigger, much of that energy goes into maintenance and repair. And then nearly at the end, all the energy is going into repair and you run out of metabolic energy and you just can't recycle. And if you think about that, well, the waste product of all that is bureaucracy, administration, and a lack of creativity. But I just thought that was a nice little uh, link for all of this. But I, near, I loved our show, I loved our episode. I have a quote, I usually finish on a quote. And I have a quote from me. But while I'm doing that, I didn't want to just put you on the spot. I'd love if you finish off today's show and signed off today's show with your own quote and your own call to action that perhaps you use from your keynotes, perhaps something that you call out to organizations as well. But I'll give this little quote here. Before I do, where can people find you for those who didn't hear us in part one? Nirbashan.com, N-I-R-B-A-S-H-A-N.com. I'm incredibly easy to find. I'm on social. I'm on all the LinkedIn and Insta and all that stuff nearbashan.com. Awesome. And here's my quote, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. Through the lens of the creator mindset, even widely held beliefs and the ensconced analytical status quo are open to challenge. Creativity releases an internal light of truth that will shine brightly in all the dark corners of your career, your business and your world. What will you uncover by looking at your world creatively? and challenging established views. I thought that was a nice way it speaks to the spirit of this show and the spirit of the audience of this show. Over to you, Nir, for your final call to action. You know, that's a good quote. I wish I would have wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, for me, it's really about, um, you know, understanding that we're all creative and 
there's a very special gift in that and giving that away and developing it, I think is as important as developing mathematical skills and people skills and every other skill. So my, my parting words are that creativity is something that can be learned and it is incredibly important to learn it. It just takes the will to do so. And so I hope over the last couple of shows that we've done together, um, Aiden, people get inspired to do a little bit more digging and a little bit more work on, um, on becoming creative. Author of The Creator Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secrets to Innovation, Growth and Sustainability near Bashan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.